Well, greetings. Welcome to the Divine Line. I've got the cough uh, button over there, ready to go. Um, you know, we don't have one of those in the RV, do we? Yeah, not. Mm, I, think. <clears throat> yeah, I suppose so. Um, anyway, uh, feel fine. In fact, I raced this morning uh, in Zwift, and uh, that reminds every time I get off the bike, I forget. You can get these messages when you're in Zwift. Zwift is the largest online racing platform. And right now it's very, very busy because it's January in, you know, it's a lot of people are riding inside right now. Um, and I just do it all year round just for safety anymore. And um, I kept getting these messages from Kay Johnson. And I <clears throat> sometimes I wouldn't be able to respond because I didn't have my phone or my phone was on a different network and there's reasons why you can't reply. And then I'd look for this guy. I could not find him. There's two Kevin Johnsons I know that I would think would be seeking me out in Zwift. Uh, one lives here locally. Um, and the other was my co-author <clears throat> in uh, the youth books that I did. Remember, what's with the dudes at the door and what's with the mutant in the microscope? <clears throat> he was an uh, editor at Bethany House Publishers. A little bit younger than I am. <clears throat> well, a fair amount younger than I am. And uh, <clears throat> finally, a couple days ago, I get another message from... I still couldn't respond to it. But it says, uh, what's with the dude at the door? So I knew who it was. But I still can't find him. I, can't, I, I don't know how to track down people in Zwift right now. And I, <clears throat> but I need to remember to do that. And I, will, I can guarantee you, by the end of this program, I will have completely forgotten everything I just said about that. Um, so, Kevin, if you're out there... Dude, uh, great that you're Zwifting. We'll have to ride some time together. Uh, appreciate that. Anyways, yeah, I raced today, and uh, I, I've decided to come up with a new category. <laughs> um, it's the age-weight category. So I can actually, in, in this on this one website, 60-plus uh, is my age group, and then it's got weights, and so I can check weights out. And... Um, in my age and weight category, I won. I, nobody was even close to me. It was great. Uh, once you put that weight part in there, <laughs> the old fat man's pretty good. Um, but no, I, I, did, I did pretty well. I think, I think it was 227 watts for 45 minutes. That's not too bad. Um, worked hard. Uh, so I sound like I'm on death's door, but um, feel fine. And it's just this stuff. And I, I don't, it's not that stuff's blooming yet. Um, thankfully, it's not blooming yet. <clears throat> um, but man, my, my tree dropped its leaves. I have one tree. <laughs> People out back each like, your tree? <laughs> yeah, we in Phoenix, we, we might have a tree. Um, my tree dropped its leaves, finally. And I had that taken care of uh, yesterday. And uh, already you look at it and the buds are everywhere. So... It it has it has like one day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it, it's it's amazing when you live in the desert. Uh, and it's supposed to be seventy nine degrees today. So that means it'll be, you know, it'll be ninety degrees in the sun, and it'll be a hundred degrees in my truck when I get into it. Um, it's just, it's coming again. That's just sort of how it works. That's just that's just life. Um, real quick, Matthew Vines. Uh, tweeted, Alistair Begg, a non-affirming pastor, recently encouraged a grandmother to attend her grandson's same-sex wedding as a way to show him Christ's love. I'm grateful that despite significant backlash, Begg has chosen to stand by his advice this week. 
it wasn't even a same-sex wedding. It was a transgender wedding, which, again, I don't even know how that works. I listened to Doug Wilson's response to Alistair Begg, which was posted like three hours after Begg's sermon dropped. So it was pretty quick. Um, and certainly agreed with the response. It's amazing. Um, Doug can abs- absolutely nail something. And the people with derangement syndrome go after him about every everything else, including one particular guy who has derangement syndrome for me, too. Anyway, um, the, I do realize that there have been a lot of simplistic responses to Alistair Begg, uh, that there were before the sermon, there are after the sermon. There were a lot of things in the sermon that bothered me. Um, he did... Uh, say that he is the product of European Christianity, um, Eng- England and Scotland, and the people he named um, certainly come from that perspective. And but then he he contrasted that with fundamentalism, and the people that I would think he would be listening to, who have had the biggest concerns about what he said, are not a bunch of fundamentalists. Um, were reformed men, despite whatever R. Scott Clark says, which I don't get to I don't get to know what R. Scott Clark says because he's blocked me on Twitter. But who cares? Um, and the the issue that we were hoping to hear addressed, which was not addressed, was not a contrast between. Well, I think he completely blew who the older brother in the story was too, um, but was not a contrast between judgmental Pharisees and those who are gracious or something like that. It's a completely erroneous um, description of what the, what the issue really is, in, in my opinion, anyways. The issue is the sacramental, God-ordained nature of marriage. And it's one thing, you know, it's, well, well, I advise, and then then we find out this woman's not a member of his church. You don't even know who she is. Because one of the things that crossed my mind was: is there so often, and people don't understand this if they've never been involved in church work. So often, when you're a pastor, there are attending circumstances that you cannot even talk about. And so I, I cannot tell you, especially in church discipline situations. Oh my goodness! Uh, the reason most churches don't do church discipline is because in this world, and especially in a social media world, it's a no-win proposition. In the next world, okay, great, but it's a no-win proposition because. When you discipline someone, um, very often they will start getting together with other people who've been disciplined as well, and they you know they start these rumor mills and all the all the slandering and the gossip and oh it, and in ninety nine percent of the instances you can't defend yourself adequately because there's all sorts of stuff you can't talk about, just it you can't, people will be destroyed. It would change everything. It's totally unfair. It's totally unrighteous. It's, it's disgusting, but that's the way it is. And so the, the, the thought crossed my mind, especially in a situation like this, 
there might be stuff with the parents, because this is a grandparent, parents, children, so maybe there's something here. You know, I'm, I was, I'm trying to be, to extend grace here, but this isn't even a member of his church, so that, that sort of takes that out. And so the, the, the whole issue is not being gracious. It's, and, and we say, well, she, she's just trying to keep her relationship. What's the, what relationship? The relationship already exists. She's the grandmother. This is, I guess, the grandson, though I've seen other people say granddaughter. Given it's a transgender thing, who knows? But it, it's not her duty to maintain a relationship when the grandchild, and again, we don't know where the parents are. That's not, not come up. But the grandchild is in self-destructive, family-destructive, societally destructive rebellion against God and his ways. Um, it's not the grandparents' responsibility to maintain that relationship. The relationship exists by blood, and the statement was already made. That they know that you do not uh, affirm homosexuality or transgenderism, I would assume, um, and that you do not approve of this relationship. Okay, relationship. What about pretending that this is a marriage? Because that's what it is. This is pretense. And it certainly has made me think about the reality that I think for a lot of evangelical Christians today, um, marriage is just a social construct. The covenantal concept of it, that kind of stuff, it's gone. Uh, it's just not a part of even how Christians think about it, and therefore, um, you know, you could argue, and people have, and it used to be a point of dispute and discussion, really not much anymore, though it could be. You could argue that more discernment needs to be exercised by all of us in regards to our role as witnesses in covenant-making ceremonies. But no one understands what a covenant is anymore. There is no covenant being cut in, in this situation. None whatsoever. Uh, it can't be. So, you put all that together, and I can see, uh, I, you know, you watch online, and wow, you know, there's all sorts of Alistair Begg fans that are, you know, firing uh, rapid fire their direction, uh, the other direction, and and then people who clearly never listened to an Alistair Begg sermon or been blessed by one, as most of us have, um, firing the other direction, and they don't know what they're talking about, and it goes back and forth and vice versa and everything else, and it's not it's not a pretty thing. But the real issues were not addressed by Alistair in, in his sermon. And that, that makes me wonder if you know, a lot of these guys do not have a social media presence. They're not, they're not reading this stuff themselves. They're getting stuff handed to them or it's being filtered through to them. <clears throat> because it, it, just, it just struck me that the response was just a massive swing and a miss. And and it just did not show that he is aware of who, 
has raised the objections. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about pretty much all reform men that I know of who have any presence in social media have said, what's he talking about? And why is he responding this way? This should be about what marriage is and uh, the fact that the church is under tremendous pressure in the society to pretend that something that isn't marriage is marriage. And that, hey, just go ahead and go along and maintain relationships. Just maintain relationships. To what end? What, what is the, so, so now you're saying what you should do is you should go along and demonstrate that you don't really have a firm conviction about what the nature of marriage is, or you'd at least have enough integrity um, not to countenance that by coming and bringing a gift. Oh, no, 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 you, you just got to keep all those channels open. So, so there's nothing you can do. So do you, you know, I mean, we can really start down a pretty dark road when you start asking, well, what about going to this? Or what about going to that? Or, you know, what, what, what about, um, you know, we have gender reveal stuff. Well, uh, what if they have, and I imagine they do, uh, they have parties for people who are um, about to get surgically mutilated. Should we maintain our relationships and go to that too and bring a present or maybe come to the hospital after wacko wacko or whatever else they've done and bring some um, bring some candy? Do we need to do that too? Um, wow, I I I'm I don't get it. I I don't don't understand it, but that's what's uh, that's what's going on. So. You know, there's. I've been asked to go on other programs and talk about. I wouldn't have enough to talk about. If we're honest with you, I don't know the man. I've never met him. We've never spoken at a conference. He's scheduled to speak at Shepherd's Conference next month. Well, it's still January, isn't it? Um, I'm sure it's in March. I don't know. I've never been there, um, and probably never will be. Um, but uh, that's that's going to because everyone's posting those pictures. <laughs> you know, um, in fact, there's a bunch of people speaking there that I had been told in years past would never be speaking there again. But um, that's interesting, too. Anyway, um, so there, there's there's that. Then real quickly, um, there was something where. Oh, oh yes. Um, one of our guys uh, has been <clears throat> scanning through the uh, transcripts function on our website. And uh, which, again, our enemies use just probably more than we do. Um, and it's, it's hilarious because going all the way back, and this is not, it's, it's not like this is something that I think about very, very often. It's not like something that we bring up very often. It, but it does come up in phone calls and debates and stuff like that. But the documentation that now exists of the consistency, I mean, the boring consistency that, that I have had um, over the course of 
my recorded ministry history, at least from when I became Reformed, uh, I guess there's something uh, from right as, I think it said it was 1987, and I think it was 86 is when I read, was it, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, it was 86, 87 is the area where um, I read uh, Chosen by God and started reading Reformed literature and so on and so forth. But um, I know that was after the Atheism series that we did on the radio program. And so somewhere before I became Reformed, wow, I repeated the perspectives I had when I was a kid. You know, I was raised independent fundamentalist Baptist. So you had uh, age of accountability and, you know, stuff like this. You didn't have any emphasis upon um, federal headship, uh, union with Christ, union with Adam, um, any of that kind of theology just wasn't there. And, um, but once I started addressing the issue, so for the past, what, almost 40 years, uh, not quite there, just mind-numbingly the same. <laughs> just example after example from debates and radio programs said the same thing about elect infants. You know, when people would ask the question, I would answer it and say, well, you've got the extreme over here, you got the extreme over there. In the middle, you've got the position that's, you know, um, provided for you in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, where you believe in elect infants. If an infant is saved, it's because of the um, grace of God. Um, and just example after example after example, it's almost embarrassing. Because, uh, you know, ah, here's one from 2005. Oh, here's one from 2008. You know, it's the same thing. And yet, this whole group of people created a controversy. They've done videos. Um, this one guy um, who's just, he's, he's Joseph Smith, and, but smarter. Uh, I mean, this guy could start a cult on, on his own. Um, someone sent me a video that he had done. As soon as it came up and I saw who it was, just clicked it off. Just don't have any interest in whatsoever. Uh, but they have spent hours and hours and hours on this stuff. And someone even came up with a Geneva doll. Did you see that one? Um, where it's, um, comes the smell of sulfur and flames, and uh, so you can explain infant damnation <laughs> and all this stuff. And of course, Cheryl Schatz, I mean, there was a whole, I suppose there's a, I, I kept one of the screenshots or something, but, and it doesn't, especially with her, it doesn't matter how many times you tell her no, once she has decided you believe something, she's just going to repeat it. It doesn't matter how high the mountain of documentation is, she has no connection to reality. It's just, it's just, it's wow, it's scary. Um, really is. But these folks, I don't, I don't know that they sleep. Um, I, just the stuff they've cranked out over a nothing burger, over, look, it's, it's chapter 10, paragraph 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1648. That's a long time ago. It's the same chapter and section, paragraph, in the London Baptist Confession. And so, hey, 
here, here's, the, here's the irony I pointed out in, in our chat channel. Here's the irony. Hey, he's confessional. <laughs> well, you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. It just doesn't matter which direction you go. There'll, there'll be somebody who shoot at you from, from both directions. Uh, <clears throat> ah, it, but it, it could be mere coincidence. But it just seems to me that when I have major debates coming up, or in this case, major debates with a capital S at the end uh, coming up, that this kind of stuff happens. That all of a sudden controversies break out and I need to respond to this person and I need to be scheduling debates with that person, blah, 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 blah. And it just does make me wonder a little bit, given how stupid you have to be to be just, I'll just be honest with you, you got to be really. You got you got to have the IQ of a wet shoelace to have engaged in this controversy. You really do. The consistency of what I have said, and all of a sudden in 2024, be having a hissy fit about stuff that I've been talking about since the late 80s, early 90s, and it's never been. I've never written a book about it, anything like that. It comes up. I had somebody on Twitter say, "Hey, I was at a conference you were at, and." And Justin Peters was there, and uh, uh, he took a different view than you did. But I remember what you said, and yeah, you said the exact same thing then. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, we've been very, 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 very consistent on this subject. So for it all of a sudden to be turned into this faux controversy, bail Baal Gate, um, it really makes you wonder if there's not a little something more to it. Um, than uh, then meets the eye. But yeah, I was just looking at some more quotes that have been posted. And it's like, yeah, um, if, if I ever get Alzheimer's, I can always go back and look what I used to believe anyways, because there's plenty of examples of it um, all over the place. And um, unlike someone we know who has Alzheimer's that changed his story a lot um, over his, the course of his political career, Different situation there. Um, so anyway, uh, once again, just briefly, please uh, pray for continued preparation. I need to have my opening statement on the, it's weird, it's the last debate of the five, but I have to have that finished uh, tomorrow. And I'm almost there. I'm almost done with it, but I'm. It, it's probably the most um, technical opening statement, given the topic. I have to have it done because the man I'm debating demanded that he have it uh, by that point in time, and I think that's the first time it's ever happened. Um, okay, whatever. But um, much more preparation needs to be done after that. I'm going to be studying while on the road, um, so I really don't need to have any problems. So we are really hoping that the um, we got the, the truck back from the shop uh, last week, and the one little thing that I had felt uh, that had changed since we had first purchased it, um, a shimmy in the front end at certain speeds, turning corners, they, they got that, and uh, it's got less than 50,000 miles on it. You shouldn't be having that quite yet, um, so I figure if you get it fixed early enough, you can keep stuff from wearing out faster than it should be otherwise. And the RV is uh, got a new roof on it, 
with uh, hopefully enough glue uh, to hold it on this time. Um, yeah, flap, flap, flap. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> Thanks. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, and uh, the refrigerator's working. Because I, I think I mentioned to you the, the fridge stopped working on last trip. And um, again, every time something like this happens, I find out why. And then I'm like, okay, well... At least I would know where to look next time, maybe. Um, and we discovered something Rich and I had did not know. We had this thing for almost a year. And we thought it was a 110 propane refrigerator, because that's what we had had before. Um, where it would switch over to propane while you're driving down the road. And then it switches back to gas, uh, back to electricity once you plug in. It's 12 volt. 12 volt refrigerator. And most people are like, 12-volt refrigerator? How does that work? That's what they're doing with all of them in RVs now. Because almost all RVs have so have solar. And so do we. Got 400 watts up there. So why not use it? Uh, you've got... Yeah, and we've, got, and we've doubled our battery capacity. So it runs off a 12-volt battery. Uh, what, whether you're... I would assume when you plug in, then shore power is doing that. Uh, but it's still only 12 volts. We didn't know. Now we know. Uh, yet every I, See, I'm trying to look at the bright side. Something goes wrong, you learn. You, 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 you've learned something more about it. And uh, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a bad ground. And uh, anything made after COVID started, let's just be honest. Oh, uh, bad stuff. Yeah, you just like, you know, the roof and everything else. It's like... But everything should be fixed. And, uh, well, we may not have... There's a fender that fell off. You know, you know those super light plastic fenders they have over the wheels. Um, one of mine got broken. And, and uh, whether I will have it for this next trip or not, I do not know. Because <laughs> I'm picking it up on, on Tuesday. And if it ain't in yet, well, it ain't going to be quite as pretty as it would be otherwise. But it doesn't really have much of an impact on functions. So it, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. But other than that, she should be ready to go. So pray that um, that we get to where we're going and we get there without incident because I need to be focused on what we're doing. Speaking of which, I need to be focused on what we're doing. Um, need to jump back uh, here to what we were talking about last week and uh, finish up if we can. Listening to... Uh, I will, uh, once the founders uh presentations are available i'll take a listen to them if i can obviously if they become available in the middle of this trip i'm not gonna necessarily be distracting myself uh with other things but um this was carl truman's inaugural opening statement to the uh whatever society of classical theology or whatever it was um and we have played uh, a number of statements that we uh, certainly agreed with and uh, you know, good insights and, and things like that. But now we're looking at, at some stuff where you'd go, okay, what about this? What about that? And um, uh, interacting with that uh, as, as we go along. So we'll go back to it. I think I left uh, the sound where it's supposed to be. I did. Uh, you never know about that, so let's, uh, let's jump back into it. That the development of the Trinity, 
The development of the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church is a highly variegated process whereby orthodox Trinitarianism emerges from a complex set of shifting debates and discussions. What that teaches us is this. Nicene formulations don't simply fall off the pages of scripture. To understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to understand something of the history of the doctrine of the Trinity. To understand why hypostasis, arguing for three hypostases, is anathema in 325 and is compulsory in 381, you have to study the history of the debates. You might say, well, what has that got to do with me? If you say the Nicene Creed, I would suggest that you as a Christian, certainly as a minister, have a responsibility to explain to your people what the Nicene Creed means. And that requires you understanding what goes on between 325 and 381. Now, um, again, m many things, ouch, that are... Um sort of self-evident, we have um, done extensive programs right here on the dividing line on Council of Nicaea, the Arian Ascendancy after the Council of Nicaea, uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381. Uh, what he's referring to when he speaks of three hypostases, one hypostasis uh, between 325 and 381 is really, all of this is not the development of the revelation of the Trinity, but the expression of the Trinity within the categories that become prevalent in the West primarily. Um, as we've explained many times in the past, part of the issues about terminology and language was due to the split that is developing right at that time. Really, really starts in the um, third century and then grows larger and larger. The split between the East and the West as far as language is concerned. The language of the East continues to be Greek. The language of the West becomes Latin. And so you have serious translational issues, especially when you talk about the ugia, the substance of God, versus the divine persons. What, is, what does persona mean? Uh, what, what's the Greek term going to mean? What's the Latin term going to mean? Homoousios in the East initially was a statement of modalism. It was denial of the existence of the three persons, and that had been dealt with in the second century in the East. And then when it's, it comes up at Nicaea, that's why a lot of people in the East had a problem with it, because it's like we already said that's wrong, because it's, understand, it's understood amongst our people to mean this. Well, we're not, we don't mean that. We mean something different. Okay, um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with translational issues? So when we talk about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, what I am concerned about is that in the majority of, for example, Roman Catholic discussion, and again, whether they want to admit it or not, uh, the new classical theologians or whatever, um, 
are promoting Roman Catholic theological formulations on these issues. And the books are recommending, and, and he, during this conversation, I don't, I've lost count as to how many Roman Catholic scholars he referred people to. Uh, because Carl has said he's troubled by the fact that the men from whom he learned the most about justification were wrong about God, and the Catholics were right. So he, you're, you're viewing this as an, as an absolute right-wrong issue in regards to God. And that's one of the problems that I have here is that we're not talking, when we're talking, the debates we're having right now is all amongst classical theists, though it does seem to me that many of these people are willing to draw the circles so tightly as to exclude people um, who, you know, profess the Trinity and the deity of Christ and, and can give better biblical defenses. It, it's funny I remember um, years ago when we were on Long Island, there, there was a group of Roman Catholic women who started coming to the various debates. And, you know, they were sitting on the front row when I was debating Mitch Pacwa on the priesthood. And so they're on his side. But then they showed up at the next debate I was doing that I think was with either a Muslim or a oneness guy or something. And so we were talking to them, and they're like, well, we sure we want to be here because we don't have anybody that does what Dr. White can do. And it's in defense of the Trinity. Um, and I, I just always think about that when people start getting really uppity about this type of stuff. So anyways, so it's important, I think, uh, to differentiate between the Trinity as it is revealed in Scripture and the Trinity as we express it when encountering various linguistic groups, languages, cultures, philosophies, um, all of that. It's not as if the Greco-Roman world is the only world that exists in our world but a lot of people treat it that way. And my concern is, I have heard many a Roman Catholic say that you cannot derive the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. And you just heard Carl say, well, it's not like the Nicene Creed just falls off the pages of Scripture. Well, I would say that which would make the Nicene Creed true does fall off the pages of Scripture. And the language that is being used is being used within a particular context because you have an objective given revelation. And in this context, you have a teacher, Arius, who is seeking to undercut the consistency of that revelation. That's what he's doing. And so the language is used to detect that fundamental denial of the consistency of biblical revelation. But it doesn't make the Trinity something that develops as a dogma to where it meant one thing at one point and something different at another point. 
and the the danger of going down that road is being illustrated right in front of our eyes right now. Um, when you listen to what Pope Francis and um, Tucci Fernandez are doing, and the many people working with them to do to accomplish this, um, you you start to realize the danger of not seeing this on a fundamental level, the fundamental relationship between authoritative revelation in Scripture and ecclesiastical interpretation of that objective revelation and the utilization of human language to answer further questions about it. And of course, there needs to be, I think likewise, a, uh, a serious examination of just how far we are willing to go before we hold up the hand and say, God's made an end of speaking, so should we. And unfortunately, scholastics are loath to do that. And part of the reason they're loath to do that today is because that limits the number of papers you can publish. <laughs> And uh, that's one of the problems, I think, in Western uh, scholasticism as, as a whole. <clears throat> so, I think it's very important to keep uh, that material in mind. You might say, well, I didn't realize that the medievals took scripture seriously. Uh, just as an aside observation, in order to be the equivalent of a professor teaching theology in the Middle Ages, you would have had to have lectured and preached through more scripture than any tenured professor in any Bible department or seminary in the United States of America today. Now, you, you just, just take that on its own. And, and the first thought that crosses my mind is you, you read um, accurate examples of some of the medieval handbooks on scripture and things like that today. And you you just you just thank God for the Reformation. Um you, you know, I, I again, you know, he says, well, some people I didn't didn't think the medievals took scripture seriously. Of course they took scripture seriously. I I can't imagine anybody saying that. The problem was the scripture had become so encrusted with tradition that to actually get down to the scriptural level was the problem. And we've, we've given numerous examples from Thomas Aquinas, who at times can, can give very clear scriptural interpretation, and then you turn the page and you wonder what just happened. The, the connection to the actual meaning of the text disappears for a few pages and then reappears for a while and then disappears, and, it, and it's this hodgepodge of stuff. And a lot of that goes back, I mean, I would say the man who damaged um, damaged the church more than anyone else was Origen. Clement didn't help, but Origen was the brilliant man whose brilliance allowed him to darken the minds of Christians for a long, long time. And that influence was still deeply there. Very deeply there, and that I, I think that comes up as we continue here. That's how seriously 
the medievals took scripture. Now, there are problems in their approach, but they did take scripture seriously. Yeah, there's problems in their approach. So, I point out for a long time that if you go into a, if you go into an LDS bookstore, and man, LDS bookstores are... <laughs> if, if you want to be able to track how much Mormonism has changed over the past 30 years, go to a large LDS bookstore. Bookstores as a whole are suffering. I get that. Amazon has not been good. Uh, but there were no scholarly exegetical commentaries on Romans, for example, from the LDS perspective. And I always said that the reason is that once you have the Book of Mormon, Dr. Covenant's appropriate price, you, you can't really practice meaningful exegesis any longer. You have scripture that comes afterwards that is meant, especially in the Doctrine and Covenants, to provide commentary from living prophets. And that completely changes how you would practice any meaningful hermeneutics or do anything like that at all. And so to say, well, you know, the Mormons take Scripture seriously, but they have some problems, is, is a little bit of an understatement, right? And that's the point here. Um, once you get to the point where you have, you know, again, these medieval manuals, the sentences and things like that, that were accepted and by their acceptance came to have really a canonical authority. Um, you, you, the, the reason the Reformation, the reason that you could even use the term post-Tenebrous Lux was that that suffocating, opaque, thick, stifling layer of dead tradition was torn away. Now we're getting people today saying, eh, it might have gone too far. <laughs> you know? um, but it was torn away so that people had access to the Word of God again. And you could, the, the, the depth that you, you look at Calvin's commentaries, the, the labor that went into that, you, you, you think about not only his physical state, his 28-year-long headache, uh, no, no internet, um, minimal numbers of resources available to him, and he's writing by quill. <laughs> it's astonishing. And those commentaries spoke to us because they freed the Word of God from the tradition, and they went back to the text. And now we have people in this very group criticizing Calvin. Because, for example, Calvin recognized that a lot of the interpretation, even from the early church, had been imbalanced and, in, and indefensible. And that's the, pro that's, that's the problem with tradition. When you get big names that become imbalanced, they create a tradition that can no longer be tested and can no longer be filtered out. And Calvin isn't an Anabaptist. He's not just throwing everything out. He is testing by consistency. 
I think that's called reform biblicism. Yeah, um, which it is, which it is. There is a T1 tradition to trace. The problem, as Overman saw it, is T2. And that's where the theological tradition starts to drift away from Scripture and become entirely determined by the teaching magisterium of the church. T1 and T2, Heiko Obermann. Uh, he's going to say he met him once. I attended, talk about something you don't even see the significance of for decades. After I graduated from Fuller, um, <clears throat> we were looking at what to do after that. And one possible option was University of Arizona because Heiko Obermann was teaching church history there. And I was already teaching church history at Grand Canyon. And so I went down to visit and uh, the visit was to Heiko Obermann's home in Tucson to a doctrinal seminar. Um, and the subject that evening was Calvin's response to Sadaletto. So you can understand why when I wrote that piece I did on Reform Biblicism last year or the year before, uh, why I especially drew from Calvin's response to Sadaletto. I can't, I can't think of a more thought-out, obvious example of the Reformers giving a reason in response to a brilliant man. I mean, Sadaletto set up the Council of Trent. And his letter to the Genevans was well-crafted. And they had nobody who could respond to it. So even though they had kicked Calvin out, they had to go to him in Strasbourg and say, um, could you help us? <laughs> I always chuckle when I think about what that, what that would have looked like. But anyway, uh, so Heiko Obermann was famous for talking about kinds of tradition. Uh, necessary development of tradition versus ecclesiastical tradition. That's what he's talking about right here, where you get the magisterium and it's developing its own thing. The problem is that you talk to Roman Catholics, as I will be with Trent Horn in just a matter of weeks, and they're not going to recognize that distinction. And they are going to invest in the ecclesia, a nigh unto revelational level of authority and interpretation. Um, so they're going to say, oh no, you know, you, you, you're making a false dichotomy here when you make these distinctions. So one might say, for example, that the virgin birth of Christ is articulated through an exegetical tradition. I would want to argue that the uh, Immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary, that's a T2 thing. That stands out with that exegetical tradition. That's where the Pope and the Cardinals are intervening to say something's the case, even though the exegetical basis for it is almost non-existent. Well, isn't it interesting <coughs> Excuse me, that um, I hadn't thought about engaging this specifically, but it wasn't really popes and cardinals that were behind the development of the Immaculate Conception. I mean, they're pushing it at the end. Once it's defined, sure, yeah, 1850s, of course. 
But it wasn't popes and cardinals. It was a monk named Edmer, a British monk named Edmer, that really started the drive on that. And, but again, I, I agree. Here is a form of tradition that is completely outside biblical parameters. The question is, how do we test any such tradition? And are we literally saying that there are forms of tradition that cannot be tested? And who makes that decision? Um, those are those are important, I think, very, very important matters. In other words, a confessional Presbyterian today does not have the option of throwing out Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of God. I don't think that is the case. Okay, so... It's obvious to me that the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the smaller number of framers of the London Baptist Confession, and see, if you hold the London Baptist Confession, you have double duty. You can't just look at the Baptist framers because in the vast majority of instances, they're completely using the language of Westminster. And so, where they make changes, okay, where they add definition in regards to the active and passive obedience of Christ. It's not that there wasn't anybody at Westminster to believe that stuff. There were. Um, but you can see from looking at the writings of the Westminster Divines, that there were differences, and when there were differences, then they wrote in such a way as to allow for as broad a consensus as possible. This current controversy, uh, controversy over the past couple of years, is about emphasis. It's about emphases, plural, in classical theology. It is responding to, you know, when, when up-and-coming young scholars publish something where they've sort of resurrected something from the past, um, there can be a swing that direction for a while, and then things even back out over time. We're talking about where your emphasis is. So when we talk about simplicity, no one is saying that God is um, the sum of definite integers. <laughs> and you just add them up, and once you, once you get the right ones, you get God. And that God is made up of all these different parts, and uh, this attribute's a part, and that attribute's a part, and nobody's saying that. Um... What we're saying is, you can argue against that, biblically. You can make a case for simplicity, biblically. And there are other people saying, that's not enough. You've got to make that case utilizing metaphysics that would have been unknown to the apostles. And that's where I go, time out. Um, it's not that you know, I, I, don't, I do not see, I, I, 
I, I, I'm sure if we looked around enough in some of the stuff on TBN that you could find all sorts of people teaching heretical stuff, even about simplicity, even though I don't know what it is. Um, but it's not like this is some big movement. Uh, there is an, I, I'm completely unaware of a uh, group promoting the doctrine of the complexity of God. I'm just not. So, the issue really is um, when we explain that God is eternal, that God is self-sufficient, that God does not depend upon anything outside himself, that God is is not to be confused with his creation, um, when we do talk about things like pantheism and panentheism and deal with Eastern religions, uh, and so there are issues that are raised along those lines, um, then from my perspective, the only way to be consistent in bringing the Christian message to different language groups and ways of thinking and things like that is to truly ground our teaching, A, in Scripture, and then B, um, know when to make an end of speaking. And to say, God has not revealed everything there is to know about his nature and about his being. And he has set the parameters, he's put the fence up, in light of the fact that the Bible is, thankfully, uh, short enough to be carried in one book. And some people seem to pretend that, well, you know what, we can, we can make it a whole lot bigger by something we'll call natural theology, and now we can get Plato in here, and we can get Aristotle in here, and we can let them start fighting it out, and we can start doing this, that, and the other thing. And, and that's not going to work in talking to the Eastern folks at all. And so this is all about emphases. It's, it's about where, what, where's the emphasis that we're going to use here. And um, from my perspective, what will carry on to the next generation is that which finds its lifeblood in Scripture and in scriptural exegesis, not what finds its lifeblood in the metaphysics of Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. And the only thing that is valuable in Aquinas is that which is already found in Scripture. Um, and that seems to be where the, the problem is, uh, is coming up here. In other words, a confessional Presbyterian today. Okay, I already did that one. Sorry about that. Um, so when he says a, a confessional Presbyterian can't get rid of Thomas's doctrine of God, um, that again assumes that you can make this clear, clean distinction between Thomas's doctrine of God and Thomas's doctrine of what God does or how God reveals himself which Thomas would not have agreed with. So I wish these guys would just be open and saying, we are, we are seeking to sanitize Thomas in a way that Thomas would have had us burned for. <laughs> I, I, I wish they'd just come straight out and say, 
look, we get it. We are making distinctions where he never made them and would never want them made and would call the Inquisition to deal with us um, if, if, if that were to happen. We, we get it. Just, just come out and say it. I think the thing that most shocked me when I was doing my work on Owen in the 17th century is that the no creed but the Bible people did exist and they were called Sassinians. And they were really bad guys. Don't put it that way. The Reformed Orthodox were not no creed but the Bible guys in the sense of just having their Bibles. They engaged in theological formulation, in dialogue with the tradition of the church. It didn't mean they affirmed the idea of every theologian who'd occurred in the church. That would be incoherent and impossible. That would be incoherent and impossible. On what standard? By what standard? Now, again, I would like to strongly suggest to Brother Carl that you drop the Socinian stuff. Now, look, Socinianism as Gnosticism was a major threat um, in a period of time in church history and in certain contexts of church history. And it's still out there. Um, I would say that I'm debating a Socinian in, in May. I would say Dale Tuggy is pretty much a Socinian. Dale Tuggy? What? What? What did I say? May? Dr. Tuggy. March 9th. There you go. A uh, lot of dates to be remembering right now. Um, anyways, uh, doc, Dr. Tuggy would, would qualify as a Socinian, I think. Um, and so I have in my hand here the Rokovian Catechism. The Rokovian Catechism. Just obviously a cheapy paperback reprint. But this was one of the primary mechanisms by which Socinianism uh, advanced itself. And there are numerous fundamental heresies in the Rokovian Catechism. Aside, aside from just the denial of the deity of Christ, you deny the deity of Christ and that impacts everything else. Atonement, nature of the atonement, offices of Christ, everything changes when you have a non-divine savior. It's just the way it works. So, were these people, me and my Bible under a tree, no creed but Christ? Well, they would say we reject the authority of these creeds because they don't have apostolic foundation. They, they would say that. Just like Luther did. <laughs> okay? Just like Luther, when faced with the demands of the magisterial church, um, tested those demands by Scripture. That's 1518, Johann Eck. It's Luther running to the library after getting hit with Jan Hus quotes. And in the wagon on the way back, admitting, I'm a Hussite. Didn't know it. But now I know. And now he's having to think through all the authority issues. So does that make him a Socinian? No. It doesn't. At all. And it is inappropriate, misleading, 
for someone of Carl Truman's great stature intellectually, it's laziness. It's laziness to use that type of language. Because the Socinians were rationalists. One of the things that I see about modern Unitarians, um, they're rationalists. They're philosophy first, not revelation first. Revelation is something to be used to sort of put stuff together. But they're, that's not, it's not dr- drawing from that. They're not exegetes. They're rationalists. And a rationalist dealing with the pages of Scripture, dealing with inspired writ, that's a completely different animal. So, it's not even properly descriptive of them. They weren't saying, that's just me under a tree with my Bible. They have a concept of a perfect philosophy, a rational philosophy. And I just don't know where all these people are that I keep hearing... Every time I hear Reformed guys, whether it's the Presbyterians, because he's a Presbyterian, Fesco amongst the OPC, um, or amongst Reformed Baptists, wailing about the invasion of the Biblicists and the destruction that they are wreaking, and then when you push them, even in the slightest, I mean... The examples they'll use, they're aiming at me and at people like me, at Reformed Baptists like me, at Presbyterians like me. I just happen to have the webcast where I just throw it out there and we discuss these things. Um, but then when you, when you face them and you, you ask them for examples, they start giving you this kind of stuff about people with their Bible alone under a tree. And that's not what I'm doing. I mean, again, taught church history since 1990. And anybody who's watched this program, and again, <laughs> got the transcript page, you can, you can go back. And there, there have been people who have complained because I will bring so much church history into discussions of doctrines and all sorts of things like that. And so I don't know who these people are. They're warning against me, but then when you press them, what they're describing has nothing to do with what we're doing. And it's like, y'all noticed this at all? And, and they're like, yeah, no, we haven't really noticed that. But none of them thought that simply staring at the pages of their Bible would allow them to come up with the orthodox Christian faith. Who does? I, I, I say, look, I, I motion this direction toward Twitter and toward, um, you know, web browsers. You can find anything online. <laughs> when I find a Kindle book that I need for the program or whatever, which you all make available through the ministry resource list, um, you give to that, that's how we do this stuff. But I ran to this guy on Twitter, I think it was yesterday that was talking about Hindu Calvinism. Hindu Calvinism. I think it was called 4,000 Years of Hindu Calvinism. And 
some of the things he said in his tweet, and there was a link to uh, Amazon and the stuff that he posted, one of the lessons that he posted had a picture of me in it. So I'm like, um, hmm. so I got the book. I, I So what I, what I do is I send the link to Rich and Rich buys the book and sends me the link to grab it in Kindle form. And I get this thing and I start looking at it. I took the time to write a paragraph for the author on, uh, on Twitter. And I start off by saying, this is a royal mess. It's a couple steps beneath Gail Ripplinger. It really is. It's that bad. And so the whole reason I mention it is I don't even know honestly if I could get enough material to even waste on ra- in Radio Free Geneva. I mean, I, everybody wants to see the new video again, but uh, I, I, it's just not enough to even try with this thing. It's just really, really bad. So my point is you can find... I I imagine there's somebody out there that actually believes that you can just stare at the page of Scripture and everything will just pop out. The Westminster doesn't say that. London Basket of Faith doesn't say that. They all admit there are difficult passages of Scripture. They all talk about hermeneutics. They all talk about um, elders and, and pastors, the role of teaching and all that kind of stuff. Everybody believes that. So, again, I don't think that guy is a threat to any Reformed church in the world. <laughs> okay? The guy wrote this book. So I don't know who you're talking about. Why make reference to the looniest of the loons? I don't understand. And, to our credit, I guess, we evangelicals on that front, what we deny in theory, we often affirm in practice. We may deny the importance of tradition in theory, but most competent ministers will use commentaries to prepare their sermons. Most competent ministers will use Bible translations that stand uh, in a tradition of Bible translation. We're all aware that actually this is the way theology has to be done. So again, unfortunately, he's sliding between definitions of tradition at this point. And, you know, I think there's a difference between fraternizing with Roman Catholics in academia and engaging with them in debate um, that may allow you to do that kind of uh, slide type thing and, and get away with it. Uh, but I, that don't work for me. Um, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't happen. You know, I'm trying to remember now as I look at this. I did this now a couple weeks ago, and the colors are... I'm trying to remember what the colors meant. Let me click on this real quick and see if we played it last time. Let me see. I started to make my sort of... You know, to the extent I had a breakthrough, my breakthrough on John Owen was when I realized how often he cited Thomas Aquinas in his marginal notes in his text. It struck me as odd, because I was very much of that sort of no creed but the Bible... Radical break, 1517, et cetera, et cetera, kind of Christian. Now, see, that really surprises me. Um, it's been a long time since I did anything with Carl Truman. Uh, the last time 
we spoke face to face was in a cemetery. Um, Phil Johnson was with us. Um, uh, Mike Abendroth. It was us four. And um, I would I would have never at that point in time viewed Carl Truman the way he just described himself. And it it does strike me, to be perfectly honest with you, that when people adopt a position that they recognize does have a fundamental that results in fundamental disorientation of where they once were. That there is a tendency to almost view it as a conversion experience. So, you know, people become Calvinists, and it's like that's when they got saved, and I've warned so many people of that type of language. Um, But he makes reference to this 2016 change in his perspectives on Thomas Aquinas, and, and, and you have that here as well. But he describes himself as as having would someone who would have been, you know, Bible alone, major break in fifteen seventeen. Well, um, Rome certainly thought there was a major break, not necessarily in fifteen seventeen, but certainly by fifteen twenty one they did. Um, and it all depends on what you're talking about. You know, I'll uh, I'll mark this one here, and we'll. We will get this done. We're almost there. We've only got literally maybe six minutes of stuff left after this, so we will we will get it done. But I want to give you an illustration that hopefully will be helpful to you. Um, a lot of people will look at the first generation of reformers, and you know some people will distinguish between. Luther and Zwingli and, and Calvin as second generation. And, and there's a there's a sense in which that's true. But let's let's say 16th century reformers, um, early and mid mid 16th century. How's that? So Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. Um they they'll look at these men and they will think that the work of Reformation finished with them. And, and there was a tendency, even on their own part, because of the enthusiasts, because of the um, radicals, because of what happened in Munster. Um, I, I noticed on Facebook just yesterday, I, what was it, uh, five years ago, I was in Munster right now, uh, five years ago. I had a picture of the the cages up on the uh, cathedral. Um, miss doing that, but uh, the world has changed. Anyways, uh, because of the radicals, there was a appropriate concern on the part of Luther was deadly afraid of being accused of releasing anarchy in all of Christendom. And that's why after the Peasants' Revolt in 1525, you see such a radical change in Luther. Calvin is aware of what happened in Munster. That's why Calvin never seriously engaged with or listened to anything an Anabaptist would have to say. was because of what happened in Munster. And you can understand that. Um, so there were issues that 
those reformers did not address. And again, the annoying Scottish guy from the outside, I do debates with people who bring these issues up. So, you will hear all the time, yeah, but Calvin and Luther believed this, that, and the other thing about Mary. Now, they won't talk about the later Marian dogmas because they hadn't even dogmatized in Roman Catholicism yet. So, you could, you could believe in the Immaculate Conception, but it had not been defined. Uh, and there are people talking about the bodily assumption, but it's not nearly as, uh, well, it's been defined as a dogma since then. Uh, 1853, 1950. So, um, but people will say, well, see, they did not have the radical view of Mary that you have, speaking to me. And my response to that is, why do you think that the Reformation was completely done in one generation? Why do you think that even someone like Calvin, Calvin didn't live all that long a life. Why, why do you think that that they had the time, energy, and ability to think through everything and all the ramifications. Now, eventually, their errors are going to apply sola scriptura and are going to recognize that what had developed over time in regards to Marian dogmas was completely non-apostolic and hence would reject it. But for someone like a Luther, that just sounded like you're attacking Jesus' mommy, so we're not going to... We've got enough on our plate. We don't need that. So, there was a meaningful application of Semper Reformanda that needed to be continued in that context. It is appropriate and right that those beliefs were to be examined, but it doesn't all necessarily happen in the first generation. And so the question for all of us is, does that process ever stop? And, and it seems to me, to be perfectly honest with you, for a bunch of folks it does. For a bunch of folks, it's done. Um, there's nothing more to nothing more to do, uh, except maybe dive deeper into Thomas Aquinas or something. Um, and I, I just recognize that if Augustine, at the end of his life, could write Retractionis and honestly go, "Yeah, you know, I I used to say this, but." probably wasn't really wise to go there. And I now believe this. And that's, that's what maturity looks like. That's what maturity looks like. It really does. It was wise of him to do that. But that assumes that you have an objective revelation from God. So anyway, with that, thank you for listening to the program today. I'm going to have, Lord willing, a special t-shirt on, on, um, on Thursday for the program. Just keep your keep your eyes out for that. I'm excited about it anyways, and all of you will be deeply disappointed, but I will enjoy myself. So that's, that's all that matters. We'll finish this up on Thursday and get to other things too. Thanks for watching the program. We'll see you next time. God bless.